When I was in middle school, I was fascinated by a unit taught in US history class on the great space race that occurred in the decades following World War II. Many of you remember that era. For those of you who are too young to, the space race, though it sounds like a field day activity, was actually anything but a friendly competition. It was a significant and enduring chapter of the Cold War that lasted for decades and most significantly involved the United States and the Soviet Union, each nation vying to attain international dominance and authority and each desiring to claim the title of superpower in international relations. As an eighth grader though, growing up in the 80s, the space race was a significantly more appealing uh, topic for class discussion on the Cold War than say espionage or nuclear warfare or any of the other related issues that we had learned about and learned to fear as a part of this ongoing global conflict. Space talk made for way more exciting school lessons than contrasting democratic governments to communist regimes. We were eighth graders after all, so it was way cooler to talk in school about rocket launches than reproachment theories, as you might imagine. Somewhere in our naive adolescent minds, the space race was a form of healthy global competition where one nation's efforts to win made the other nation rise to the occasion and get better. That said, there's obviously only so much that a 13-year-old brain can comprehend about the nature of intergalactic battle and world domination. It's true of a 43-year-old brain as well, I would admit this morning. But the material covered in that US history class on the space race stuck with us. It was inspiring and compelling because in those lessons we learned about amazing human accomplishments. Things like sending satellites into outer space and humans orbiting the earth and walking on the moon, just to name a few. And in each instance, the name of astronauts associated with these accomplishments, people like Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins and John Glenn were etched into our memories. So this middle school history unit came back to mind for me a few years ago in 2015 as I watched Barack Obama award the Presidential Medal of Honor to a 96-year-old African-American woman by the name of Katherine Goebel Johnson for her contributions to the space race some 60 years earlier. I listened to testimonials being shared about this woman and her work at NASA as a human computer. That was her title. She calculated rocket paths and plotted data received by satellites from outer space. She tested figures from flight experiments. The list of her achievements and contributions went on and on. But as I listened to this, something occurred to me. I had never before heard of Katherine Johnson prior to that evening. Her name was not one included in those history lessons I'd enjoyed. It wasn't in our textbooks or one postured as worthy of being put to memory as a national hero for us school kids. For that matter, neither were the names of any of the hundreds of human computers that worked for NASA in this era. These were unknown people who worked behind the scenes making careful and precise handmade calculations, ensuring the success of the missions of astronauts like John Glenn 
and other countless astronauts that we had held up and revered as national heroes. And as she received her incredibly delayed recognition that November night at the White House for this brilliant work that she had done over a half a century before, the thought occurred to me, I don't think this was Katherine Johnson's vision. This wasn't the motivation or uh, a factor as to why she did her very unseen work. I don't think Katherine Johnson sat at her desk there at NASA in 1962, pining away for a day when she would be touted as a national hero. This was the early 60s, folks. Women in the workplace were an anomaly in and of themselves. But during this dark period of our country's history, a black woman in that role was even more so an anomaly. And yet Johnson, it seemed like all of these women who worked behind the scenes at NASA understood and, enroll, and, and embraced her role in the space race. Their sense of motivation and their significance weren't based in recognition or acknowledgement of their individual achievements. It's as if they were secure in being nobody in the eyes of history because they understood that their contributions were indelible parts of something much greater than any one person could ever achieve in and of themselves. Now, obviously, Katherine Johnson was eventually recognized for her efforts with this award. And in that moment, many, myself included, became very aware of the contributions she had made in this formidable effort in American history. But what about the others? I mean, what if this incredible group of talented people with their unique skill set were driven only out of a need to be somebody and to make a name for themselves? What if these women had withheld the contribution of their gifts and skills and left the astronauts to figure out their own calculations for reentry or their own algorithms to determine the viability of a mission? What if these women had chosen to interpret the gain of astronauts like Aldrin and Collins and Shepard as a threat to their own recognition and renown? seems to me that without these supposed nobodies and their willingness to quietly contribute their gifts faithfully to the role they were given to play in the space race, something that altered the course of history and the future of the world may never have been achieved. And that's gotten me thinking about the value of being nobody. It's interesting, it's interesting to me that in John chapter three, we find John the Baptist engaging with some of his faithful followers who are struggling really with this very kind of identity crisis. John was in the thick of his ministry at this point. He was baptizing people who were seeking salvation. But at the same time we read, Jesus had also begun a ministry of baptism in a nearby region. And according to the reports of John's followers, Jesus's ministry was gaining momentum. More and more people were coming to him to be instructed and to be baptized. Some tell us by this point, they believed at least two of John's closest followers had already left their teacher in order to follow Jesus. So from the perspective of the remaining disciples of John, the game was on. The stakes were high, and frankly, things weren't really going in John's favor at this point. 
The gospel writers tell us that these guys are riled up as they return to John following an argument they've had with a fellow Jew about baptism. And we don't really know what that argument was about. It was potentially about the nature of John's baptism versus that of Jesus's, or maybe it was geographic in nature with each side drawing a line saying, you stay here, we'll go there, we'll stay out of each other's way. We don't really know for sure. But here these guys are, they're fired up from this debate and they come running to John and basically say, hey, we have a problem here, teacher, because this guy, the one that you claim is the Messiah, yeah, he's moving in on your territory. He's baptizing people just like you and now everybody is going to him instead of us. And I pause there at that place in the story and confess to you that I kind of get a kick out of it probably because I can relate a little too closely with John's disciples here. Has competition ever gotten the best of you like it has me? Just four verses earlier, the gospel writer sets up this entire scene telling us that John was actively baptizing. The text says people kept coming to him for baptism. But these followers of John who've just returned from this argument are perhaps now a little irrational. (laughs) They want to be right. They want to be validated by their teacher. And so in an effort to get him riled up, they insert a little hyperbole into their account of what's going on. They say, not only is Jesus also baptizing, but now everybody is going to him and nobody's coming to you. Everybody. And I love that because isn't it true that apparently just like these guys, we are so often culturally conditioned to measure our achievements and accomplishments against those of someone else? Nod your head if you're not, because like it or not, I assure you this is the case. So because of this, when we feel threatened or we fear being overlooked, we often resort to dramatic extremes just like these guys did. When I picture this scene in my mind, I see them standing there along the shoreline where John was actively baptizing. And John's listening to these guys and then he turns and looks at this line of people who are awaiting his attention, waiting to be baptized. And he turns back to his disciples and says, guys, are you for real here? Get it together. And yet the truth is, I should give these guys the benefit of the doubt because while it's easy to roll my eyes at them and assume this is just a buildup of testosterone in their system from the argument they've just come from, the reality is I think their panic was reflective of the way most people in this day, age, and culture would have interpreted Jesus's success that was growing. You see, in first century Israel, there was a fixed mindset of wealth. It was deeply ingrained in these people. They believed that there was only so much to be had in the first place. And so if someone else had wealth, it meant someone else did not. Dan, if you had viable crops or livestock, then that would mean you, Kathy, did not. Because there was only so many assets to have in the first place. And this wasn't only true about the way they viewed material wealth, but it was also true of the way they saw things like position and notoriety and fame. It was simple math in their minds. Addition for one people, person, 
meant subtraction for someone else because there's only so many ways you can slice it up. And so with that mindset, John's followers began fearing loss as Jesus gained momentum. It's easy to point a finger at these guys, but I actually have a lot of compassion for them. They had a lot at stake here. They had been loyal to John and to the ministry he had called them to assist with. They had experienced the thrill of success as John continued to baptize more and more people and gathered more and more of a following throughout the region. And so now the threat of losing that renown made them fear becoming insignificant, maybe even obsolete. They certainly feared plummeting quickly from the ranks of being somebody to the shame of being nobody. Thankfully, John the Baptist isn't rattled by his followers' alarm. John didn't fall into the common human trap of playing down another's accomplishments in order to highlight his own. He didn't respond to them by saying, well, Jesus has a distinct political, cultural, or socioeconomic advantage that I don't have. That explains it. Or say, yeah, it's just where Jesus happens to be. He's in a better part of the country. There's more people there. So that explains his numerical success. He doesn't do that. Instead, he reminds his followers that any success that he or Jesus, or anyone for that matter, past, present, or future has, is in direct alignment with God's intention and provision. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good checkpoint for me. Because how often do we overlook the provision and permission of God when we take account the accomplishments of our everyday lives? How often do you stop at the end of your workday or once the kids are finally asleep or as the guests, extended family or friends that you've had for dinner walk away from your home and say, God, all of this I have, not because of anything I have done, but because you have entrusted me with this job, these possessions, this position, or these relationships. John's reminding his followers here that while he has been faithful, he has done hard work, he, like Jesus, has only accomplished that which the Father has and is now making possible. He tells them that this is what's supposed to be happening that this turn of events that's transpiring much to their dismay is actually his very mission. It is the role he is to play in the greater unfolding of God's plan. And of course, this makes sense to us here 2,000 years later, reading it through the lens of scripture because we know that from the very beginning, from the pronouncement of John's existence, by the angel of the Lord to his father, Zechariah, John the Baptist was given the purpose of going before Jesus. He was to make Christ's coming known and to prepare the way for the Lord. Prepare the way, the angel said, not be the way. So in other words, John was never destined for greatness at least not the greatness people assumed he would desire and pursue. 
Not the type of greatness that matched the definition of the culture around him or the type of greatness that would make him somebody in the eyes of his contemporaries. And this being the case, this account in John chapter three then is a significant one in John the Baptist's overall life and witness. Because while he had established and executed a highly successful ministry up to this point and had plenty of followers, we begin to see an important shift in his life and ministry occur. John moves from being forerunner and prophet to follower and modest confessor of Jesus Christ, one greater than he would ever be. John knew that there was no kingdom of his own to build. And so his motivation to do his work wasn't about making himself known or receiving notoriety or fame. Instead, his work was preemptive. It was ground, if not at times, backbreaking. And it was most certainly intended from the very beginning to be eclipsed by someone else. That's a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? And yet, friends, we cannot be so consumed with our own achievements and successes that we fail to see the bigger picture of what God is doing, not only in, but through us. Because it's almost guaranteed that if we interpret another person's gain as our loss, we will withhold the contributions, our contributions to a greater work that God is doing almost every single time. John the Baptist told his followers plainly, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. And as Bernard of Clairvaux once wrote, if you are to do the work of a prophet, you need not a scepter, but a hoe. You see, the work and the gift that John the Baptist was given to share with the world was prophecy, not salvation. He was called to be a servant, not a celebrity. And so understanding this very countercultural purpose for his life, John goes about redirecting his followers and he gives, them, he gives them instructions that must have seemed so counterintuitive to them. He didn't rally the troops and plan a counteroffense. Instead, he points them in the direction of Christ, explaining that the greatest role they could ever play was essentially in hiding themselves, in becoming less so that Jesus would be known. It's remarkable to me here in the height of John's ministry that he was mostly concerned that no one be confused by his presence at this point in the unfolding of God's plan. And so in his response, we see an embodiment of one author's claim that embracing obscurity is not about wiping oneself from existence. Rather, it is voluntarily becoming nothing in light of everything God is and has promised. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus must become greater and greater, John said, and I must become less and less 
because far superior to any accolades or accomplishments that John could garner through his own ability or merit was knowing that God was using his efforts and abilities, his blood, his sweat, his tears, and even the sacrifice of his own success to make straight the path for one who would reconcile all of creation to its maker. What greater purpose could you possibly have in life? It's been said that obscurity is sometimes assigned to us by God and other times our choice. And so I've been thinking about that a lot this week and about the way we as disciples of Jesus then respond in each of those seasons. Because undoubtedly, there are or will be seasons in your life where nothing you do is recognized or esteemed where God chooses to keep you in hidden, unheralded work for the sake of his greater plan. And so the question then becomes, how do we respond in those seasons where we are assigned obscurity? Do we panic and suddenly feel a loss of value because we're not receiving feedback and appreciation for our work? Kind of like John's disciples were in that moment. Or do we press on, recognizing that these skills and abilities and positions were given to us by God in the first place for the sole purpose of making himself known? This season where obscurity is assigned to us is actually the one John is about to head into. This account in John 3 is one of the last accounts we have of his ministry prior to his imprisonment and beheading. And so following this encounter, most of those who had been following him, calling him him teacher and making him known to others begin to fade into the background. They begin following another teacher in Jesus. But John's season of recognition for most intents and purposes was just about over. But in this moment, where John is still active in ministry, where there's a line of people lined up along the shore at Enon waiting to be baptized by him and where by all worldly accounts, he is in the crux of his day of being somebody, John does this very counterintuitive thing and he points to someone else, something else that is greater than he himself will ever be. It's there that we see John choose obscurity and embrace anonymity for the sake of making Jesus known. And so it strikes me if I, like John the Baptist, truly desire to be a fully devoted disciple of Jesus Christ, then I have to learn what it means to become less instead of more. At least so far in my journey, I'm finding that to be extremely hard work. I've wrestled with God on this. I've said, how on earth are we even supposed to do this, Lord, when we live in a day and age where it seems fame and being known is the ultimate objective? It is an amazing force in our culture today. In the past decade, social science researchers at the University of California tell us that through their surveying of American youth, fame is now the number one aspiration of young people in our country. 
Not being teachers or doctors, not being soldiers or social workers, professors, musicians, artists, none of that, just being famous. And some of the interviews that they record in this study are unbelievably sad because they demonstrate that these kids don't even want to be famous in a particular area or vocation. They just want to make their name known. And so that drives all sorts of crazy behavior that we see online all the time, right? Been on YouTube lately? I mean, some of these people put stuff out there. They really actually have no gift to share. (laughs) There's not a developing skill there that they should continue in the pursuit of because it will make the world better. That's not what it's about. It's about being known. So it's about the number of hits the video can get or how many times it can be shared or retweeted. Even in our screwed up culture today, if we were to revere fame, the truth of it is that it's not about somebody doing something that contributes to the greatness of society anymore. It's just about being known for something, anything really, be it creative, stupid, weird. There was a sixth grade kid in one of these studies who said his lifetime goal He's sixth grader, right? So we're talking like 12 years old, I think. He has a lifetime goal of becoming a member of the worst ever NBA team. That's his aspiration. And his rationale is that because he has the best chance of becoming a superstar if he can be amongst a team of terribles. How's that for compelling? This is strange. And Jesus calls us as his followers to a different pursuit. He beckons us to recognize that the opportunities and blessings God intends and provides to us are to play a role in something greater than ourselves or that any one of us could possibly achieve on our own. This is the pursuit of being nobody, I think. And it's a pursuit that flies in the face of everything the world encourages us to strive for. It's a calling and it requires us to willfully and intentionally seek becoming less so that Christ can become more. So in a few minutes, we will be invited to the Lord's table. And this is a place where we find Christ and we receive from him an extraordinary grace, especially as we seek to be his disciples and do these things that are so countercultural to the world around us. And so if you're a parent of a splash child and you'd like them to come to the table, now would be a good time for you to go and get them. But as we prepare to do this together, I want us to take a moment and truly prepare our hearts to respond to this word from the Lord. I'm guessing that some of you are in seasons today of your life where you find yourself um, thrust into the life of obscurity. It's not your choosing. It seems to have chosen you. Perhaps some of you are uh, in a season where you've been uh, trained, equipped, educated for a certain type of work or vocation, and yet the job just keeps passing you by. And if that's you today, then I want you to come to the table asking God for courage to stay the path he has given you to walk, recognizing the value that is in whatever work he has given you to do today because it is a part of something greater that he is doing and is including you in. 
Maybe you're somebody who the majority of your days are spent behind closed doors caring for young children or for aging parents. And it feels like nobody understands the load that you bear. And if that's you, then I want to encourage you today to come to the table asking God for strength, to stay the course, to recognize what a privilege God has given you in caring for these people because through them and through you, he is doing a greater work than could possibly be accomplished in your life alone. Maybe maybe you're at an age in your life, be it young or old, where it feels like you are being constantly overlooked. People are telling you you're either underprepared or you're past your prime. And if that's you today, then I hope you will come to the table seeking Christ's inspiration, recognizing that in this season where you are being made to feel lesser, there is fertile ground for Jesus to become greater. Some of you are in a season of life where you're experiencing a lot of uh, recognition, accomplishment. You are known and have great position. And so if that's you today, I hope you'll consider what it looks like to choose obscurity. What would it look like to make every effort to celebrate others around you who are playing a role in your success? Not because elevating them is the goal, but because in doing so, you are reminding the greater body that we are doing this together, that God is building his kingdom, not through one of us and our renown, but through all of his children looking to him and his kingdom, his kingdom. Maybe you're experiencing a season of prosperity. And if you are, then I want to encourage you to give lavishly, generously to the purposes that align with God's kingdom. And here's the kicker, do it in secret. Do it without the need for acknowledgement or in a way that makes people go, I don't know where all that money came from. It must be of the Lord. If you're in leadership in any realm, take every opportunity to do your work anonymously. Give credit lavishly where credit is due and find new ways to empower and unleash the talents and abilities of others. Because remember, we're all just playing a small part in what God is doing. And so by encouraging others, you may be unleashing something that helps to move the ball forward as opposed to stifling it in God's greater work. Wherever you're at in this, I will offer you an honest warning. Choosing obscurity is an incredibly difficult feat. We are so wired in our world to think about climbing corporate ladders and gaining more and more that it can feel discombobulating to essentially stop climbing for the sake of giving somebody else a boost. And the last time I checked, descending means going down. Becoming less is descending, not moving up or ascending. And so the more people you elevate and encourage, be prepared because by the world standards, you'll likely be told you're moving in the wrong direction. Jesus said, don't do your good deeds in public to be admired by others for you will lose the reward 
from your Father in heaven. Instead, give your gifts in private and the Father who sees everything will reward you. Whatever season you're in, whether it's one in which you are choosing obscurity or one in which it seems to have been chosen for you, please know that the pursuit of becoming less is not a passive, victimizing act that happens to us as the world so often portrays, but instead, as Jesus taught and as John modeled, it is the active, willful pursuit of living into our roles as disciples of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, we desire to be your faithful disciples. And so we ask that you would grant us all we need to decrease so that you might increase, that we would accept that which you have given us today for the sake of your greater kingdom good, and that we would be faithful in every season, whether it be one of plenty or need, to recognize and surrender ourselves for the greater work you are accomplishing for the sake of your great plan. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.